1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. The leaders that I talk to often talk about the decisions that they're faced with, and they're often asking themselves and me if they made, quote, the right call. So, but winning athletes and coaches make a constant series of calls. So today, we're going to talk about what you can learn by studying these series of calls between athletes and coaches, some of the top in the world, and how they go about making the right calls. And then we're going to ask, what does that tell us about us as leaders and how we could do a better job, either in our confidence in the calls or in our prep for the calls? Now, you're going to hear a lot of fun stories and you're getting a lot of insight, even if you're not a particular sports enthusiast. So stay tuned. My guest today is Sally Jenkins. She's been columnist and feature writer for the Washington Post for more than 20 years. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2020 and in 2021 and she was named winner of the Associated Press Red Smith Award for Outstanding Contributions in Sports Journalism. She's the author of 12 books, all nonfiction, including The Real Americans, which is a story of the Carlisle Indian School and its use of football as a form of resistance following the close of the Indian Wars. Her work for the Washington Post has included coverage of 10 Olympic Games, And in 2005, she was the first woman to be inducted into the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. And if that's not enough, she's a graduate of Stanford University, and better than that, she's a resident of New York. So Sally, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. I should say the book we're talking about today is called The Right Call, too, by the way. Yes. A book I loved reading. I I just really loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Okay, Sally. Well, thank you. Out of all the years of writing for the Washington Post and all that coverage that you've already done, what fascinates you so much about elite athletes and their coaches that you wanted to write a book now about what you've learned?
2: You know, it was a a, a slow accumulation over the years of of realizations that I was watching something more important than uh, they're normally given credit for. I mean, we spend a lot of time asking ourselves what's really important about games and athletes, uh, the $64,000 question is, you know, are they just there to entertain us and to awe us or can we really take something home? Um, I happen to know you can take things home from them. I wanted to put it down on paper in an organized way for people so that when they watch these athletes and these coaches, they understand there's a deeper intelligence going on there uh, that, that has fascinated me personally. I wanted to get out that intelligence uh, and uh, and convey it to readers.
1: So when you say deeper intelligence, give me an example of what you mean by that.
2: So one of the things that happens with a really, really well-practiced and well-conditioned athlete is this sort of deep level alertness. Uh, one of the stories in the book is Michael Phelps, the great Olympic swimmer, was swimming laps, conditioning laps. And uh, you know his head is immersed under the water uh, in the practice pool where he would uh, do his swimming laps. Um, it had a glassed-in atrium lobby, and at one point, he finished a, a lap, and he he picked his head up out of the water and said, did my mother just walk in the lobby? Uh, he had almost an extrasensory perception uh, while he was swimming these laps that really kind of astonished his coach. But the fact of the matter is that uh, deep-level practice and deep-level conditioning fires all sorts of neurological connections. Uh, there's an absolutely incontrovertible connection between your physical conditioning And your cognitive functioning, uh, your executive judgment under pressure, Um, we know that. uh, We're discovering more about that all the time. And more and more when I watch athletes perform in a a pressured circumstance or a really big game, I'm more alert to the messaging system going on between their their brain to their body and their body back to their brain, because it's a very, very, very efficient messaging system and it's improvable. And Mm -hmm. that's something that the rest of us can take from them.
1: One of the things I um, was struck by in reading your book, and I agree with you, body conditioning improves cognitive functioning. That data is pretty clear. And you see that in the top CEOs will routinely say of members of their team, you've got to take care of your health and your body first. If not, you're not going to be effective on the job. But one of the things from your book that struck me is we look at great athletes like Michael Jordan, for example, and it looks so effortless. When he's exhibiting whatever layup or pass or whatever he does, and you just don't realize how much went into making it effortless. Yes, it looks that way, but it wasn't necessarily always that way. And that struck me as just an important insight.
2: You know, they're so good at making it look easy. And uh, it's almost like, uh, it's not unlike writing to tell you the truth. It takes an enormous amount of work to make something read easy on the page. So maybe I can relate to that a little bit, uh, myself because, you know, I think that, uh, we, uh, one of the reasons why we can take so many of the wrong lessons from athletes is because they can make it look almost nonchalant or they can make it look like a natural born talent. And it is not, I'm here to tell you that talent is a fractional factor uh, in in what makes a champion what makes a champion organization uh, behind all of that nonchalance and apparent ease is a lot of very dirty tedious practice and conditioning and more importantly to get back to why it's intelligent it's highly highly organized these people are not haphazard in their in their practices uh, that lead up to those performances and they are not just drifting and they're not just waiting for a jolt of inspiration. You know, the rest of us tend to drift a little bit in our approaches to our work uh, or our lives or toward decision-making. Athletes are the most intentional people in the world in how they go about their work.
1: Intentional physically as well as intentionally mentally. And we're going to kind of talk about that one a little bit. Just across the
2: board, yeah, yeah,
1: across the board, and I think that we're missing a whole bunch of things that we can learn about great performance by not paying attention to this work. All right, yeah. a, a couple of questions I have to ask before I dig into what it is that distinguishes them, but I was fascinated that you called this book a book about athletes and coaches, and both are in the book, the right call. Mm-hmm. So, it why the right call? You're we're talking about decision making. Why?
2: Because athletes, even in their most uh, intuitive seeming split second moment, are making decisions. Those are micro decisions that a uh, Steph Curry, when he's taking a shot for the Golden State Warriors, you know, or a Jimmy Butler, um, you know, a great NBA player, uh, when he's letting that ball go, that's a decision. And there's several micro decisions that led up to that shot. You know, where to take the shot from, when to take the shot. What's what's your takeoff point? Do I go to my left? Do I go to my right? You know, do I go all the way to the basket or do I pull up for the three pointer? There's all these things rush through their minds and they make they make a series of small micro judgments leading up to the big shot. Uh, There's there's not there's no matter how split second it is, it's always married to method and decisional expertise under pressure.
1: Okay, I have to know more about this decisional <laughs> expertise under pressure. Something we don't talk about nearly enough in leadership roles. Last question before I dig into the components of this one: You say in the book, and you've said this to me personally as well, that watching, writing, and watching about these athletes and the coaches changed your work. Can you tell us that story? Oh,
2: they, yeah. They, I mean, they've really, they've really influenced me profoundly, and it, that's maybe one of the most surprising things. And doing the book and arriving at the decision to do the book really came from from that realization, the extent to which I had been impacted by the people I'm covering. You know, I I write at one point in the book that you spend your whole life trying to put these people down on paper, you know, literally stamping them down in letters on the page. And I didn't realize uh, how much of an impression they were making on me. Uh, I do now. I'm more cognizant of it now. But their habits have become more my habits at work. Um, I'll give you just one brief example of that, um, and, and maybe this will help people understand how maybe examining athletes more closely uh, can impact their own habits. Uh, you know, deadline writing under pressure—that's performance under pressure, right? When the Super Bowl is over, you have about ninety minutes after the score is posted, the final score is posted on the scoreboard, to write about a thousand words. Okay. Uh, That's my job at the end of the Super Bowl. That's a really high-pressure endeavor. Um, It is a lot easier to manage that pressure if I've I've super prepared in the walk-up to the game, gone back through all the interviews from the week and pulled out all the different quotes that could be interesting and applicable after the game. I have them already typed up. I have a couple paragraphs that I think are probably going to be pretty useful and potentially meaningful, potential pressure points in the game. Some of it I may have to throw away, Uh, some of it I may not use, but I have always got it uh, right before that that scoreboard um, finally ticks zero. I have a bunch of material that I can pull from and use so that I don't have to write a thousand words in 90 minutes. I only have to write about 500 because I'm prepared, right, for the pressure I'm going to face, right? So I started doing that more and more. I don't go into a big game situation anymore without a bunch of Uh, what they call B-matter, sitting, you know, right there, ready to cut and paste. It sounds like you're doing the same
1: thing that the athletes do. You're breaking down that article into a series of micro decisions. Yes. I going to talk about this person or this quote or this pivot in the game or this shot or this prep or this whatever, and you're anticipating what might happen. And then you're prepared for it. Two of the qualities that I recognize in the methodology you talk about from athletes.
2: Exactly. And you have to be prepared to, you know, not use some of it, uh, you know, but is it really going to waste if it's making you feel more comfortable and deal with, you know, the kind of uh, choking feeling that you may experience, you know, at at 830 at night uh, when the Super Bowl has just ended? You're just a lot more comfortable. You know, you can mitigate the pressures you're going to be facing if you've got some wherewithal, you know, if you're walking into that situation knowing uh, that you prepared maybe better than a lot of other people to your left and your right. Yeah.
1: And you never know what's going to happen. I think that's the other thing. As I listen to the stories about the preparation from athletes, you just some things that seem like that's ridiculous. And then lo and behold, one day in one game out of nowhere, that preparation turns out to be really significant. And one of those was a Super Bowl story. You want to tell the story about sure, the I,
2: I love that story. It, it it came direct from Peyton Manning, who I spent a lot of time talking to for the book. He was the great Hall of Fame quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts and then the Denver Broncos. And um, and Peyton told me this story. Uh, when he was with the Colts, his great coach, Tony Dungy, about once a week would get out a garden hose and spray the footballs with water uh, until they were soaking wet. And then he throw him on the field and he would make Manning practice with the wet football. Him and his set center Jeff Saturday would have to practice the snap exchange and run through the playbook using really wet footballs. And Saturday said to Peyton, he said, What are we doing this for? This is so stupid. We play in a dome, you know? And um and and Peyton said, Well, I don't know, Jeff. I mean, maybe there could be a hole in the roof or something. You know, I don't know why he's doing it. Well, the Super Bowl that year was in Miami and uh Miami doesn't get much rainfall uh, in February, but on this particular day, a monsoon came out of nowhere. And Manning opened up the windows of his hotel room on the morning of the Super Bowl and saw just sheets of rain outside. And he actually felt like comforted, you know? He was like, now I know like why he made us do that with those wet footballs. Uh, It was a big deciding factor in the game. Manning and the Colts never fumbled the ball. Their opponent, the Chicago Bears, fumbled the ball twice on the quarterback center exchange. And uh, it was it was really the difference maker in the game. Um, you know, Manning told me, it's an old quote, uh, your pressure is something you feel when you don't know what the hell to do. You know, right. when, when, when the game is over, a lot of Super Bowls, a lot of big, big games, forget never mind football, are you know, so many times sports events are decided in the last two minutes, right? right. Uh, and they're decided by very marginal things. You have to be able to identify those marginal factors like a wet football. You have to be able to write the story about it on command in about 90 minutes and present it in English that other people are going to be able to understand. And when you're just more prepared the way Peyton Manning was prepared to to handle a wet football, you just feel better as you go about that that job.
1: Well, and you've got more, you understand more the micro decisions that are going to lead to success. And you're right. We're talking about fractions of inches, sometimes fractions of seconds, fractions in speed. I mean, all sorts of things that are going to make the difference between winning and losing. We've seen too many of those watching games. All right. I love one quote that you said. You said, we can, can't can borrow athletes' bodies, but we can certainly borrow their decision process. So as you looked at the athletes and their coaches you identify seven things that they really work super, super hard at to be prepared for those crunch moments and those decisions. Let's run through those. What are they?
2: Okay. So the, 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 seven principles and here's where they come from. I looked at the wide, wide, wide variety of athletes and coaches I've covered. Uh, Laird Hamilton, greatest big wave surfer in the world. Diana Nyad, greatest endurance swimmer in the world who swam from Cuba to Florida. Uh, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, NFL quarterbacks. Uh, Tommy Amaker, great basketball player and now basketball coach. Uh, Steve Kerr, Golden State Warriors. I looked, I, I, I went through, interviewed all of them, talked to all of them. Uh, Jill Ellis, coach of the World Cup women's soccer team, and I said, what are their commonalities in their practices and their habits? Where do all roads intersect? And they intersected in seven places, right? Mm-hmm. Seven, seven practices, and those are conditioning practice discipline uh candor culture failure and resilience to failure and intentionality those are the seven subjects that came up time and time and time and time again no matter the sport no matter the coach or athlete that i was talking to and those are pretty broad terms and one of the things that's a little frustrating about sports is we lapse into buzzwords and uh you know, sports speak, uh, bring your A game, you know, only the strong survive, all that nonsense. Um, what I wanted to do with each of these terms was unpack them in a very, very detailed way with stories straight from the horses' mouths, coaches and, and top athletes. What is culture? What is conditioning? What is real discipline? And how do you impose discipline on an organization? Because, quite frankly, the only people I I know of that 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 take well to, you know, orders, the only adults who accept orders from someone else, uh, you know, live in barracks. Uh, you know, discipline is a really, really tricky subject and hard to impose. So I really wanted to take those terms that we throw around so loosely and, uh, and say, what do they really mean? And, and how do you really construct okay. conditioning? All right. So let's take them because in
1: my reading of the book, they build one or the other, like you can't get to the bottom one without getting the first couple of ones. So conditioning, and you've already mentioned the body, mind, decision-making parallel, but what's the core part about conditioning?
2: So the core part about conditioning is just the understanding that just because you're sitting at a desk working from the neck up doesn't mean your body isn't working really strenuously. And if you don't believe that, um, look at uh, chess players, grandmaster chess players who can lose 20 pounds, uh, in a big high pressure tournament. Uh, you know, they can, they they'll burn 500, 600 calories just in a day of tournament play. And just to put that number in context, you or me, uh, jogging on a treadmill would burn about a hundred calories in an hour. Okay. So, so basically understand that your body is always working, right. It's never turned off. Um, it's, it's burning. And so, Uh, It's a pretty fundamental thing to understand that and to realize that like your best judgment and your best cognitive function, no matter who you are, is not going to come sitting at a desk when you're drinking a diet Coke and eating a glazed donut. (laughs) Okay.
1: Good point at it. Right.
2: So, uh, So start there. Start with that. You know, anyone working from the neck up has to have a baseline of decent condition to have decent executive function.
1: I love that one. You you talk about grand chess masters who would lose ten and twenty pounds over the course of a week or weekend play, and five thousand to six thousand calories a day they're burning just sitting, and that's not because they're getting up and pacing between games.
2: There's a there's a rather famous study. You know, these guys have been uh, hooked up to monitors and Fitbits. There's been a lot of study about them, and one study in particular by a guy out of Stanford. Found that they they really their bodies are like marathon runners, you know that's their caloric sort of metabolism metabolism. These these uh, grandmaster chess players, Magnus Carlsen, who's the greatest chess player in the world, really uh, actually went to the Norwegian Olympic training center to get a training regimen uh, because he understands that his his cognitive function he's a better chess player and a sharper uh, you know more alert player at the board when he's in his peak condition.
1: It's interesting. We give so disservice to the need to be conditioned in our body, but I'll just make it simple. In one way, if your body is conditioned, that means you're probably sleeping well. That probably means you can manage your stress better. It probably means you're not going to lose your temper as frequently. It probably means um, you've got some other balance and resilience in your life in general that's just going to make you be able to handle the twos and fro's of the job, let alone the decision-making. So i find that an interesting, compelling argument, and I'd love the research that you cite in that chapter too, about the way the mind and the body work together for thinking
2: I mean that's a really great summary and and you know if you look around, I think the era of the sort of the the paunchy cohiba clenching uh three martini at lunch c e o uh I think that day is done. i mean you know Bob Iger of disney is a is a animal uh of uh, you know physically i mean he's the one this incredibly well conditioned man. Richard Branson, you know, uh, really well conditioned, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, um, you know, is built like a rock. I mean, these guys are actually working out, you know, they, they understand that, you know, irascibility, poor diet, uh, is just not, not leading to good judgment. Um, Derek Jeter, the 11 time captain of the New York Yankees is a a really good example. Uh, Derek Jeter went to bed every night during this season Two hours after the game was over, no matter how long the game went, no matter what city he was in, no matter what invitation he had to do something fun, he was he was in bed getting his rest. Uh, exactly two hours after the final uh, the final out, uh, unvarying. Everybody who knew Derek Jeter knew: don't ask him to do anything until November. He won't do it. He won't go out. I mean, he really conserved his energies. You know. Now, do the rest of us have to live that way? No. But it's you know, you can take some common sense lessons from that, which is that type A people um, are not necessarily serving themselves best by burning it at both ends.
1: Well, I have a few clients who are going to have a hard time um, accepting that advice, but again, if you I think the whole point is we're looking at top performers. And yeah. as a leader, you are performing every day. You need to be at your best on top of your game every single day without exceptions, or you're going to end up with an organization not going where it needs to go. So why wouldn't you take a page from athletes? All right, conditioning. Yeah. So my body is in good shape. Now we move to practice. Tell me about practice.
2: So a uh, people confuse, I think, the difference between uh, practice and conditioning uh, quite often. It's a good question. Well, what's the difference between conditioning and practice? Uh, the difference is practice is highly detailed work uh, based in analysis of, uh, strengths and weaknesses. So it's, it's fine tuning, right? You have a baseline of conditioning. And on top of that, now you start practicing for specific skills. Uh, most of us, like, let's say we want to take up the guitar or, you know, tennis, we practice at it until we get pretty good. And then we run around our weak backhand, you know, for the rest of our lives. Athletes don't stop there. Athletes, you know, look at, you know, my non-dominant left foot. Could I get a little quicker here? Uh, they get very, very particular and they uh, about practicing their uh, their fine skilled, you know, uh, applications of their body to, to various tasks. Right. Um, and they are very, very uh, they're, they're real seekers and searchers looking for millimeters of improvement or, or RPMs of improvement. Um, I'll give you just one example. Tom Brady, you know, Hall of Fame quarterback, was faster in the 40-yard dash at the age of 42 at the end of his career than he was when he was 20 years old and drafted out of the University of Michigan. He'd gotten a tenth of a second faster over his career at the age of 42. Okay, That's how much he'd worked on his feet, which were his biggest weakness. His foot speed and his foot agility was the biggest weakness of his of his career.
1: I think that puts a point on whether you should um, just emphasize your strengths or you should work on your weaknesses. I think you have to emphasize your strengths and you have to work on your weaknesses because those weaknesses make the difference. I know so many places, so many occasions, where a senior leadership team has gotten together and said, let's run a practice. Suppose the worst happened, you know, Mm -hmm. suppose there was a nuclear explosion or suppose it was a chemical spill or whatever, what would we do? And they run that practice. And then, lo and behold, two years later, something happens and they're so much more ready because having run that practice with the thing you think might never, ever happen, but they're a little better for it as a result. And that's a simple version of practice. It's not the detailed practice you've been talking about.
2: Well, it's it's a really great lesson because, I mean, that that's one thing that athletes and coaches are really, really good at is practicing in the face of resistance that you're liable to meet, right? Um. You know, uh, here's a simple example. Most of us, uh, I mean, I'm not the first person to have thought of this either. Uh, most of us get ready for a speech or a presentation by just memorizing material, but you're gonna have to recall that material on deadline or in front of other people, right? And that's a different sort of pressure. Um, and, so, and so one thing that we could do really pretty simply for ourselves is uh, try to approximate the conditions we're gonna be asked to perform in a little bit better golfers are famous for this. They go to the driving range, they beat balls off a very flat driving range into the distance. Then they go on the golf course and they can't understand why, like, uh, why am I not hitting this seven iron the way I did on the driving range? Well, you've got side hill lies, wind, rain, sand. I mean, there's a million factors on the golf course that don't exist on the driving range. Right. So. Right.
1: Right. I remember a college sports team. It was actually a rifle club going up against a national competition, knowing it was going to be covered with cameras. And so the coach brought a cameraman onto the field and said, you're going to practice shooting with a camera in your face because that's what you're going to experience when you're at this competition. So let's get ready for it. It's like approximating as closely as possible the conditions where you make decisions under pressure. That's an interesting lesson for leaders to talk about the amount of practice we would need to do.
2: Great example.
1: Let's do one more that's tightly tied to this, and this is discipline.
2: Mm-hmm. Trickyest, trick, trickiest subject in in the world. Trickiest subject in the book. I mean, let's put it this way: veteran NBA coaches like Steve Kerr uh, have a hard time in how they try to impose discipline, and they really, really struggle with it. You know, how is Steve Kerr supposed to tell Draymond Green? Uh, you know, his his biggest, most temperamental, most forcible forcible enforcer of a player. Hey, man, put your cell phone down. Right. I mean, it's not going to work. I, it, so so coaches, especially people like Pat Summit that I spent a lot of time with Mike Shashevsky, One of the things you discover from great coaches who run these great organizations is uh, they take a very delicate approach to discipline. They're known as disciplinarians in some ways but their approach to it is very finesse, very finesse. They do not go storming in and imposing a bunch of discipline on people. They have very few rules. They think really carefully about those rules and they think really carefully about the the penalty or non-penalty when people don't meet those rules. Um, And quite frankly, they don't spend a lot of time uh, on punishment. you either are you know a person who is self-selected into the organization and you meet the standard of discipline, or you're not there. I mean, right. quite frankly, they don't waste their time on a lot of discipline. Oh. Pat Summit hated rules. Mike Shashevsky hated rules at Duke. So how do they then,
1: can you give me an example of the ways in which they subtly impose discipline?
2: So, you know, they make a, a, a very small handful of rules and they're non-negotiables. And the people who who don't want to exist within that framework, they're like, okay, yeah, th- this isn't the right like place. It. Yeah. I mean, they just don't mess with it, right? Pat Summitt had one rule uh, that essentially covered the behavior for her entire team, which was uh, you can't cut class, you know? she wasn't going to waste scholarships on players who couldn't make their grades and then were ruled ineligible. So you could not cut class. If you cut class, you didn't play. And if you cut class enough, uh, you were out of the program. You know, it was that simple. Um, and that, that actually governed a lot of other disciplinary problems. Um, she not only required that they go to class, they had to sit in the front three rows so the professors could identify them and know that they were there. Um, and Pat had transfers every year. I mean, almost every year of her career, one or two kids left the program, you know, and she would say, she'd say, that's the, that's the cost, you know, it's not right for everybody. And if they all loved it, I wouldn't, there'd be, you know, I I must be doing something wrong. Uh, Tony and the Indianapolis Colts, same way. Peyton Manning told me it wasn't that Tony Dungy was, you know, like such a nice man, which he is. Uh, He just didn't have people in the building who were going to be late to meetings who weren't going to do their jobs. Like you were either in the building or out of the building. Anything in between was really non-negotiable.
1: Interesting. So there are a few hard and fast rules, but we mean those rules. And those rules have knock-on consequences. Meaning, if I'm imagining in Pat Summit's case, if I have somebody who's disciplined enough to get themselves to class and sit in the front three rows every single time, then they're probably going to apply that discipline to other things in their life.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. She would tell her players. Uh, Pat had a great saying, you know, uh, "Discipline yourselves so nobody else has to."
1: Okay, and it worked. And if you're around people who are disciplined, it sort of tends to spread to everybody. But Very I love good. this notion about you're either at the meeting on time or you're out of the building. Like there's there is no in between. I can't yeah. imagine if leaders impose that, we'd have a completely different culture accordingly. But you have to be careful which rule you impose.
2: Yeah. I mean, Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy basically would say in a very understanding way to a young man, you well, look, when you're, if you're late to a meeting, it tells me it's not important to you and that I'm not important to you and that what we're doing is not important to you. If it's not important to you, it's not important to you. You know, it's that simple. I mean, he didn't spend a lot of time finding players. I mean, Tony Dungy, who was Peyton Manning's coach, uh, you know, basically said, uh, I don't believe in finding players, you know. He, he he just thought it was a useless exercise. You know, it was infantilizing. Uh, you know, if, if they weren't fulfilling their basic obligations, they they didn't need to be there. Okay.
1: So presumably the good ones came to him. Is that the idea?
2: Yeah, people self-select. Pat Summit used to tell me that all the time. People self-select. A lot of people thought they wanted to be uh, at Tennessee. Thought they wanted to win championships at Tennessee. A few of them got there and realized that they didn't want to adhere to all of the things that, you know, make it for a championship organization. And she found it out very quickly and would tell them, you know, you need to go to school someplace else.
1: Right. You have a famous quote from her, or quote from her that I really loved, which is, and I'm not going to get it right. I'm just going to get the gist of it. She said, people are afraid to keep score. Well, your father said that, I think, too.
2: No, Pat, yeah. She went on
1: to say, Pat, Pat went on to say, can you say a little bit more about that? What what is this? People are afraid
2: It was a great conversation that I had with her. My father, who was a Hall of Fame sports writer, uh, used to tell me people are afraid to win. You know, Uh most people are afraid to win or a lot of people are afraid to win. And I didn't know what he meant by that. And and I said it to Pat one day. I said, my father says that that, you know, a lot of people are afraid to win. And she said he's absolutely right. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, most people are afraid to go all in. Most people are afraid to go all in and give something their absolute best and say that's the best I can do. They're afraid to have to say that's the best I could do. Um, and 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 when you when I thought about it that way, it, it suddenly made a whole lot of sense. this This concept that it confused me for quite a long time. you know, she made it very, very clear. you know it's about pushing your personal chips into the middle of the table and betting on yourself and your abilities and also being willing willing to live with it if if you're not quite good enough or you you meet with a reversal or a setback uh you know which ha- which happens it's invariably um yeah yeah
1: all right some powerful lessons i think this is a perfect place for a break sally so my guest today is sally jenkins sally is a columnist and feature writer for the washington post or for the last 20 years has been doing so and has covered more than 10 Olympics and countless Super Bowls and who knows whatever else. There's a zillion stories in this book called The Right Call. Three things that are common between the great coaches so far and the great athletes. One is conditioning. Your body is in great shape that allows your mind to work well so that you're making the right micro decisions in split seconds. Two is practice, highly detailed practice, working on your weak points so that you get marginally better on those weak points. I think that's an interesting one for leaders to ponder. And three is discipline. But discipline not imposed with a thousand different rules, discipline imposed with a couple of clear rules, which are either all in or all out and no in between. And that sets up this mindset we were just talking about of not being afraid to go all in and giving it all the best, the best that you've got. Win, lose, draw, not good enough. It's giving it everything you've got. So those are three. We have four more to go. Candor, culture, failure, and resilience, as well as intention. So we'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight.
0: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website, at www.leadership-forum.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum helping organizations get it and keep it
1: hi i'm wanda wallace host of out of the comfort zone we have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive. All on out of the comfort We hope you'll
0: join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program. At 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to Wanda.Wallace at leadership forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Sally Jenkins. The book we're talking about is The Right Call. Fabulous collection of stories that Pat has written about over the years. From elite athletes and elite coaches, and I think, while well, it's written about sports, the lessons for leaders is unbelievably powerful. In fact, the lessons for just performers in organizational life is powerful. We've talked about the common things that those leader, those athletes and coaches share. Three of them: conditioning the body and them is in good shape. Practice working on your weaknesses discipline, that internal clock regulator that just keeps you going and going and going and going in a steady pace. So you give all your all. And now I want to talk about the last four, candor, culture, and then we'll talk about failure and intention. So candor, how, tell me how this works.
2: So you you can't address your weaknesses unless you're candid about them. And you have to be candid in exploring them. I mean, you just can't improve anything until uh, you've honestly assessed it you know uh and and i think that the, what's really striking about championship organizations and championship people uh that it, it, it struck me over the years is is just how honest they are uh with themselves and each other uh there's no um you know there's this phrase locker room talk locker room talk that i've been around um it, you know it's mistaken for crudity and stuff there's a real emotional honesty at work Um uh, Pat summit told me once that um, there's a language that teams speak when they're getting ready to win the big one. You know, she could feel it in her locker room. And I said, well, you know, what does that sound like? Um, and it sounded like emotional honesty. Uh, you know, they, they were willing to admit their weaknesses, address them, work on them, you know, make improvements. Um, they, they didn't have a lot of vanity, you know, championship teams uh, were just very emotionally honest. And um uh, I've always I've always uh, admired that you know, about about the winners that I've covered. Uh, they don't tolerate yes men and yes women. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're very interested in critique and self-critique. But the other thing that's interesting about the candor in a winning locker room or a winning organization is that it's always married to very clear explanation. The difference between a winning coach, a great championship coach, and um a, a bully and someone who's just trying to impose their will on others um, is that they always marry their criticism to solution when you do this we are great when you do this we're not so great but when you do this when we do it this way you're great so they don't just criticize you have to play better you know like I, you know a good editor doesn't tell me you have to write better they say you're better when you know, you pay as much attention to the bottom of the story as the top and, uh, and your middle is weak here. And you could shore that up with more material. Coaches present you with hard fixes. Right. Not just criti- not not criticism. They don't just praise and blame. They explain. I never saw Pat Summit show a piece of film of her team doing something poorly that she didn't immediately follow it up with a piece of film showing them doing it the right way and resulting in a in a in a good result, a basket or a defensive stop. There was always, always the problem followed by the solution. It was a, it was very striking and very persuasive stuff.
1: And it's the problem followed by the solution or a problem followed by a good example. It could yeah. be either either of those. When I think about leadership and I think about leaders' willingness to receive feedback. Their yeah. hunger for feedback. The great ones that I've known are constantly asking, how could I have said that differently? What else? Do you think I got the reaction here I was looking for? They're just constantly looking for that edge, one kind of twist that's going to make a difference. The leaders that are hesitant to get that kind of feedback, I think are never going to be great because it's yeah. there's something that's missing. And it's not just that when you give feedback, it's not just you want to say that wasn't good or that wasn't a great presence. You wanna get much more specific around it. When you do it this way, it works really well. When you do it this other way, it doesn't work very well. That kind of granular behavior makes all the difference in the world. Same story, same story. I think,
2: I think so, and I think that there's a lack of ego in that and people sense it and feel it. They feel like the leader is invested in the entire organization, right? They're just yes. trying to make it better. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, if they're seeking out, you know, critique of their own performances, right? Um, it, there's an all—we're all in this togetherness to that. Uh, okay. And I'll tell you something else: leaders, really great leaders, really great coaches—they don't speak in vague terms. Uh, they don't uh, buzzwords and corporate speak. You know, it sounds couching and polite, uh, but real competitors hear that as evasive and maybe even duplicitous, right?
1: I'd agree. I'm, I am on a mission to end things like you need to be more strategic. I don't know, you know, most people don't even know what you mean by that. Where are you going? What is that? Is that an excuse to give me a poor bonus or something? So um, yes, I think it is heard as evasiveness.
2: I mean, one trick that coaches all use is when they have to have a difficult conversation with a player, like they don't just say you need to be more strategic. They're Mm -hmm. armed with statistics, film, film is a great tool for coaches because it's so impersonal
0: because the
2: performance is right there. It's not your personal critique of them. It's, it's there. Here's the result. Here are your statistics, right? Here's your performance. Um, and so, so coaches are a little lucky as leaders in that they've got a lot of hard data that they can use. Um, and so, but I do think that it's, it's a pretty, uh, applicable across the board to say, when you're approaching an employee, when you're approaching a team member, uh, always marry the conversation to some kind of data, right? So it's not your personal assessment of their their and and, and it ha- and it's impersonal, right? It's not it's not a personal attack. This right. is this is the data about the performance, and this is we want we have X here. We want to get to Y.
1: I know it's hard for people to get that kind of data. Um, we don't get film tape. Yeah. don't get scorecards at the end of every day. We get some, but not at the end of in ways you'd like, but you can get behavioral feedback from other people. How did that talk land for you? How was that meeting for other people? You can get that kind of feedback and then it becomes data in its own way. How do people react to you? We've just got to get better at it. I agree with that one.
2: So here's an area where coaches don't have hard data, which is um, are their assistant coaches teaching well, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Are they coaching? How well are their assistants coaching? Um, And so they have to go to their players and say, you know, um, and get a feel like, uh, you know, is there a teaching weakness here? You know, are are, are these things getting across? Right. Um, And so I think it's very similar, actually, for for people who work in offices, you know, who's teaching well, who's leading well. You have to ask the followers those questions. Yeah,
1: Yeah. absolutely. Totally. So that kind of willingness to be very candid, because if you're not seeing it, then you can't get the practice to work on the weaknesses and then you're not getting better. You're not making those marginal gains. All right, culture. Everybody wants to talk about culture. What did you find about culture?
2: Oh, it's the most annoying word in the world, isn't it? Because what does it even mean? Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and, and everyone ha- appends like an adjective in front of culture. You know, we have a creative culture or, you know, we have a, uh, you know, well, God, there's a million different types of cultures in right. the business world, Right. Um, you know, uh, we have a tech culture, we have a, you know, so the problem with culture, uh, so what is culture? Culture is an environment. It's a pervasive environment. It's organic. Um, It has to be grown as much as built. Um, And it's an atmosphere. Uh, It's the atmosphere in which people work every day, like a Petri dish, right? Uh, and, um, And you have to be real attentive to it in the sense that Uh, the main lesson I learned about culture from the coaches I talked to and the heads of organizations that I talked to uh, and the players who had worked in great winning cultures, you know, why do some cultures win more than others? Why do some businesses seem to make better decisions over time than others? And the separator appears to be that everything in the culture is in alignment. Alignment was the critical factor there um, when it comes to discerning. uh, Like, so if you say, um, you know, we have a creative culture, But you're rewarding uh, people with the same old ideas uh, Mm -hmm. and your salary structure, you know, is uh, promoting people to sinecures and letting them sit there for a long, long time without making real changes to their departments um, and if your your office decor is not particularly creative, and you know it looks like an airport, um, that's not a creative culture. That's not a, that's not a culture at all, much less a creative one. So you have to align all of those things: the people you're selecting, the way you're rewarding them, the atmosphere that they're working in, literally what's on your wall, the walls of your building. One great example of that in the book is Steve Kerr and the Golden State Warriors. Kerr wants a culture. He believes players play best. Uh, when they're feeling uh playful joyful he believes basketball is a game that should be played with a sense of real high spiritedness that that is what brings the best performances out and uh especially under pressure and so if you look at the golden state warriors warm-ups before games so many teams warm up in like regimented lines the warriors are all over the place they're doing trick shots before the game Steph curry's throwing the ball backwards over his head you know um they're just there's loud music playing and they're all laughing and they're playing around like a bunch of kids getting really, really, really loose. That is just perfect cultural alignment for the culture that Steve Kerr wanted to build with the Golden State Warriors. And it, it just flows through the ent- entire organization and you see it on the court in the way they play the game. OK, I got a that. very loose outfit.
1: OK, that should leave a few leaders with a pause. All right, let's talk now, and we were saving the best part for the very last two. This whole notion of failure. Yeah, we think about the winning, but we don't think about the failure. So, what did you find about athletes and coaches, the elite ones?
2: It's my favorite to failure. It's my favorite subject in the world, not just in the book, but uh, it's 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 always been far more interesting uh, to think about, uh, f- to look at failing teams and be in losing locker rooms um, than in winning ones. To tell you the truth. Winning locker rooms are, people are very, very um, self-congratulatory and self-assured. The losing locker rooms, you've got people who are really questioning themselves and what they've been doing. Um, They're much more sort of naked uh, emotionally. Um, And talk about candor, right? I mean, that's the most honest stuff you ever hear, you hear in a losing locker room. Um, And so, you know, it was funny. One editor said, well, maybe the chapter should be resilience because failure is such a negative sort of term. And I was like, no, you know. Failure is the most common experience in the world. We all encounter it. And it's if athletes are worth examining, it is in how they deal with failure. Because how they deal with failure is what sets them up to win the big one. It is an essential precondition for winning and for achieving. You can't do anything without it. Um, They are like engineers who understand that unless you put something through a really severe stress test, you can't fully understand how it works and how to make it better. Athletes suffer failure time and time and time again in ways that we don't really examine that closely, but in ways that I've come to respect more than anything else about them.
1: So how do they deal with these? I mean, first off, you're going to lose way more games than you're ever going to win. Sure. Whether you're a coach or whether you're an athlete.
2: Yeah. I mean, the greatest clutch shooter in the NBA misses, you know, usually, um, you know, 60 percent of his shots and keeps coming back and taking them. You know, I mean, a really great, great shooter in the NBA only shoots about 40 percent, 42 percent. You know, I mean, you might have a night when you're 50 or, or better, but that's that's rare. Your your, your career percentage is well under 50 percent. So, um, you know, I mean, my favorite statistic. Almost every year at the Super Bowl is you run over the roster, the game day roster of the Super Bowl teams. There's 53 men on a roster. Usually, 20 or more of them weren't even drafted out of college. Coming out of college, they were not considered good enough for a minimum rookie salary and an invitation to a training camp. Right, so um, that's a failure, and that, that's the first failure they ever experienced. And they managed to, you know surmount that initial failure and come back and back and back and back until they made it onto a team and made it all the way to to a Super Bowl some of the guys in the NFL they've been on four and five teams before they caught on and found a role and a niche on a team that made it to the Super Bowl they're unbelievably uh, resilient in the face of setback and uh, they're uh, they're just not easily destroyed these people and the rest of us are so easily destroyed when we meet with a failure you know So why? What is it
1: that keeps them going and coming back and back and back when all the data would say, what are you doing? You're not making it.
2: Uh, Curiosity, for one thing. Athletes are such deeply curious people about, um, you know, Steve Young, who was a great quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, has said that sports are the greatest laboratory of human behavior in the world. And um, I think it's very true, number one. I think that's a great observation. And number two, I think that athletes have, a deep curiosity about themselves, about their natures, about the capacities of their bodies. Um, it's, it's, a almost an obsession for them. And that gives them, uh, that gives them motive. It gives them motivation. Um, and you know, there are a lot of other people in the same line of work who understand that about them, who offer them a little bit of subtle encouragement along the way. Um, uh, Usually when a guy gets cut, you know, the coach says, look, it didn't work out here, but don't let this be. I've had more coaches tell me that that's how they handle that terrible day when they have to cut, make the last cuts from the roster. You know, only 53 guys can be on the team. They're cutting sometimes 15, 20 people that they really thought a lot of, but there's just not room for them in a small organization. And a lot of these coaches tell them, look, don't let this be the, the final verdict, you know,
1: it's an interesting way to think about somebody It didn't work here, but, you know, keep going there, you keep know,
2: yeah, you've got going. some promise. You've got some talent. Um, keep looking around for a for an outfit that can use you and and keep, you know, you've you got better over the last couple months. Keep getting better. You know, um, they, they really they they really have a perseverance that's so admirable that I, I just love about them.
1: So there is and you say that perseverance is driven by curiosity. I think so. What can I do next? And yeah. how can I do it? And how far can I push myself? And let me try again and again and again. And all of that fueled by the things that we've talked about already, the conditioning, the practice, the discipline, the candor, and so on.
2: Now, okay. they, have a great, they have a great advantage. They love what they do. Right. They love what they do. It's a lot easier to stick with it when you really love it. Right. 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 And on
1: that one, I'm going to end here with a quote that is at the very end of the book that I love from Pat Summit, a great basketball coach. Though she'd won eight national titles over a 38-year period, Summit finished the season a loser 30 times. And it was only in it, she she was only in it to win. She wouldn't have lived with it. It wasn't the winning that sustained her. It was her pure love of the contest. That's right. I think that's a great quote to say, you've got to be loving what you're doing and then be curious about it as well. Wow. Fascinating. All right. You got 30 seconds. Sally, what takes you out of your comfort zone?
2: Oh, boy. I love scaring myself. Uh, Writing longer stories, writing books, uh, deeply uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable process. I tried to quit on this book. I tried to give the money back. Halfway through, I was so scared that it was terrible that that I called my agent and said, "I, I, I may have to... I may have to tear up the
1: check. (laughs) Great. I'm glad you didn't because it's an absolutely fabulous book.
2: Thank you. Great, My guest today,
1: Sally Jenkins, the book is called The Right Call. If you're looking for understanding what it is, what it takes to move your performance as a leader or as an individual, just a notch better to be better than your competition. I don't think you're going to go wrong by reading this book. Plus, it's fascinating stories, even if you're not a sports enthusiast. Sally, thanks for joining us today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a fascinating conversation.
1: I loved it. I hope you'll come back again for more. Uh, And join us next week for a more episode in
0: getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.